Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're going to jump into a very interesting discussion with Darius Gray, who's the presenter of this year's Leonard J. Mormington, uh, Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture um, called Redeeming a People, the Critical Role of Historical Examination in Moving Cultural and Moral Trajectories. Before we jump into that discussion, which we hope you'll join us for, um, Tom Williams joined by Danny Hayes. And we have some important uh, business uh, to uh, continue with uh, the Pledge Drive. We're now in our... Last day. We are Danny, in our we're, last we're day. counting down. We started the day at 10,000 needed to reach our overall goal. I think we're now at uh, some 6,000-something. Yeah, so the, this whole last week we've been counting up to our goal of the pledge drive, which is, which is $45,000. But now, because of the listeners, because of you, we are now counting down from 10,000. And we I'll, I'll, after this um, one our, this break, I'll go ask Katie what where we're at, and um, we'll keep on counting down all day today. But yeah, I think we're at like seven, um, eight thousand, um, six thousand dollars left. Um, so let's tell you about this um, challenge pledge, so your money can go pretty far here at Utah Public Radio. So thanks to Sonia and Ryan Dupont, they have generously sponsored another three thousand dollar pledge, um, pledge, and that's going on all day today. So your money doubled, right? Your money is doubled uh, today, courtesy of Sonia Manuel Dupont and Ryan Dupont, and uh, we've got a lot of thank you gifts. Um, but uh, we want to keep our eyes on the prize here. Uh, your pledge right now, in whatever amount, is doubled, and that really will help us to reach our goal. We want to by the end of today, we want to be down to zero needed. That will mean we've met our goal. Definitely. So yeah, the pledge drive ends when we hit zero. So let's get it done. 800-826-1495 or go to upr.org if you support programming like Access Access Utah. If you tune into Tom every weekday at nine, consider um, supporting right now. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. And uh, you recall we had Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books on yesterday. And at the very end of the program on Access Utah, he... Uh, he uh, issued uh, some some uh, great uh, incentives for us. Uh, we didn't expect this, but uh, Ken very generously provided uh, uh, for one example. You could have at the $100 level an autographed first edition of Amy Irvine's new book, Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness. This is a response to Edward Abbey and uh, Amy Irvine, uh, author of the well-received book Trespass from several years back now. This is her new book, Desert Cabal, A New Season in the Wilderness. And uh, Ken Sanders, also back at Beyond Books in in, uh, Moab are offering this at the $100 level. So you could take us up on that, get that uh, first edition uh, book, and uh, your money will be doubled. Definitely. And then I'll mention at the $250 level, you'll get a set of four signed books from Wendell Berry, Terry Tempest Williams, Doug Peacock, and Amy Irvine. So that's at the $250 level, the set. So you'll get four signed copies of that. So this is for any book lover, anyone who's a fan of environmental literature. Give us a call and um, claim these. We only have um, one set each. So at the $100 level and the $250, um, we'd love to give these to you to say thank you for your support of Public Radio 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. And thank you. This year's Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture will be presented by Darius Gray. The lecture is entitled Redeeming a People, a Critical Role of Historical Examination in Moving Cultural and Moral Trajectories. That's 7 o'clock tonight, Logan, Logan Tabernacle in downtown Logan. And the evening's events will also include performances by the Deborah Bonner Unity Gospel Choir. 
An African-American Latter-day Saint speaker and writer, Darius Gray, was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the mid-60s. He was a counselor in the presidency of the Genesis Group when it was formed in 1971, then served as president of the group from 1997 to 2003. He was also a director of the Freedmen's Bank Records Project for the Church's Family History Department. He's a frequent speaker on African-American genealogy, blacks in the Bible, blacks in the LDS Church, And along with Margaret Blair Young, he co-authored the trilogy Standing on the Promises, which is a poignant portrait of black LDS uh, pioneers. We welcome Darius Gray for the hour today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Listening to that, it seems I can't keep a job. Yeah. (laughs) Or a lot of accomplishments, (laughs) right? That's that's the positive spin. (laughs) Um, I wanted to do a little of your your bio, uh, Darius Gray. Um, So, uh, grew up in Colorado? I did. Had a marvelous childhood. Um, it was a beautiful time to grow up in a, in a, lo- a lovely environment. Uh, in '64, I believe it was, you um, uh, you joined the you're baptized uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Correct. Tell us how that happened. I was very very fortunate. Uh, I had uh, been out of school and had gone to the West Coast where I lived briefly and um, returned home to uh, my mother's home. Dad was gone, and all of the kids were gone. We kids were gone, and uh, Mom said there was a new family in the neighborhood, and she said a white family, but they seemed awfully nice. (laughs) And she said uh, they had a whole slew of kids, and um, I think it was the next day I was walking around the block with my friend Butch, and as we passed in front of that home, I saw the kids in the yard playing, and they saw us, and uh, they came rushing up to the gate and threw it open, and they called me by name. Mm. Uh, Two of the younger kids had um, been frequent visitors to my mom, and she had told them I was coming home. And uh, they said, uh, you are Aiden, my middle name. Mm. Uh, We're the Felixes. We're Mormons, you know. Mm. It was just one, two, three. Mm. And uh, my concept of a Mormon was more like a Mennonite or a Quaker. Mm. And uh, the attire of these young people in summer togs did not match what I expected. And so my response was, the hell you say. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the beginning. Mm. All right. Uh, So introduced the missionaries, I'm I'm sure. Um, Met with the missionaries, but even before that, it was the family. Uh, John Mm -hmm. Felix Sr., uh, his wife Barbara, and the five kids— that family was the sort of family that you gravitate to. Mm. Um, they were open, warm, loving, real, mm. just you know, down-to-earth people. And um, that really mattered more than anything. Yes, they were Latter-day Saints, and yes, um, they offered me a copy of the Book of Mormon, which uh, I refused, and they gave it to me anyway. Mm. And yes, they were good missionaries because— they started asking questions from the Book of Mormon. And since I hadn't read it, I felt foolish. So I started reading. Then I had questions. And it was at that point they suggested I meet with the missionaries. Mm-hmm. Was there mention, was there a point which the missionaries <laughs> said, well, you know, you, you can join the church, you can be baptized, but you will not be able to receive the priesthood? Yeah, there was a point, but it didn't come maybe when it ought to have. Um, I was scheduled to be baptized on Saturday, December 26th, the day after Christmas, 1964. And it was actually the day before Christmas Day evening. 
that I was having what I call my final checkout with the missionaries, um, asking if I um, really understood what it was I was doing. And while meeting with them, um, they said, well, Brother Gray, um, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. And it was a question I had raised earlier. And at that point uh, earlier, they said, well, we'll get to that later. Mm. Well, now later had arrived. Right. And so I, I remember touching my hand, uh, my right hand with my left and noting my own skin color. And I said, reading in the Book of Mormon, oftentimes there are just two major groups of people, Lamanites and Nephites. And often the uh, Lamanites have dark skin and are out of favor with God. And so the simple question was, how, if in any way, does that relate to me? And it was at that point, one of the uh, two missionaries uh, got up from the sofa on which they were seated, and he walked over to the corner, and uh, the senior companion said, well, Brother Gray, the primary implication is that you won't be able to hold the priesthood. And that's when I knew. Hmm. And uh, I don't remember much more of what was said that evening because I tuned out. Hmm. Um, I was I was not only surprised, I was deeply hurt. Hmm. Um, my mother uh, had hosted these missionaries in her home for the first visit. But after that, Mom had called me in, into her room and said, uh, they're not invited back into this home. And I asked why, which was the wrong question. Mom reminded me, this is my house, and mm-hmm. I set the rules. And uh, she had warned me of an experience she had had prior uh, to our kid, the, the kids even coming along. Um, she had been home one day. Two young men came to the door wanted to speak with her about their faith. And uh, she invited them in, and uh, shortly thereafter, one of them had said, uh, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Gray, but uh, are you Negro, or do you have Negro blood? And Mom answered, yes, of course. And they hastily left. Mm. And so my mom saw the LDS Church as a racist organization, and she did not want me to be involved with that. Mm-hmm. So here, hearing from the missionaries that night, December 25th, Christmas Day evening, um, I thought there's no way I'm going to be baptized tomorrow. So what happened? I made a fatal mistake. I mm. prayed. Okay. Um, entered seriously. I entered into prayer the first time, um, and uh, had closed my prayer and was so at ill at ease. Um, I entered into prayer a second time, and this time I received personal revelation. I did not see God the Father or Jesus Christ or angels, but I heard. This is the restored gospel. And you are to join. Mm. No mention of the priesthood restriction, whether it was just or unjust, whether it was of God or of man. Simply, this is the restored gospel, and you are to join. So you did join. I did. Um, I want to, and you have you have said that you uh, you had questions, which which I could imagine you you would have if I put myself in your place. Uh, I want to hold that with just just briefly. Um, you you then um, how old were you when you? Oh, I lie about my age. You yeah. pick a number and I'll cop to it. <laughs> <laughs> but but fairly soon after you had to Provo, Utah. 
Um, yeah, six months later, I, I asked so many questions that um, people got tired of me and suggested that those questions might better be answered at BYU. Mm. So I made application to be a student at the at the Y, and uh, surprisingly was accepted. Okay. And well, maybe we could bring this in. What were the questions? Doctrinally, I found more answers from the Felixes and from the missionaries than I had found elsewhere. Uh, I had been raised in the Church of God in Christ, my mother's church. And um, it was a, uh, a denomination that didn't have a lot of study aids. Uh, the chief instrument that we had was the Bible, King James Version of the Bible. I had been given my first copy of that by my parents when I was young and uh, had read it. And I had made a point of reading the entire Bible. And uh, we didn't have yellow highlighters back in those days, but I had pencils and at times even little red marking pencils, and I used those. And so doctrinally, I found more of my questions answered by the LDS faith, but organizationally, it was new to me. Mm. I expected uh, that there would be apostles as there had been in in, in the Bible. Um, I was not aware of 70s and a first presidency. And so there were a lot of organizational questions that I had. There were follow-up questions to why can't blacks hold the priesthood? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? What's the basis for it? And um, the short answer is those individuals with whom I dealt in Colorado really didn't have any answers. Mm. And to my dismay, when I got to Utah, there weren't any answers either. Uh, you heard all sorts of supposition, folklore uh, back then, but then as you tried to track down the origins of those answers, uh, you came up wanting. Um, such things as blacks were less valiant in the preexistence. Well, can you give me a citation? Help me understand that. Or blacks had been um, fence sitters uh, in the war in heaven, uh, where all were required to take a side. Uh, blacks had um, said, well, sometimes we're for God, sometimes we're for Satan. That didn't make any sense. And so those were the sorts of issues that troubled me. If you are going to deem an individual, and not just me, but an entire race of humanity, as less than, as cursed, you ought to have some answers. Mm-hmm. So you were searching for these answers. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you, you, files, right? And bulging files. You were you were researching this. And sadly, there weren't many sources back then. Mm-hmm. And and in, in essence, that's part of uh, my lecture this evening. The fact that we need to know our history. Uh, Without that knowledge, we really can't understand what transpired. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was the basis for? What are the mechanisms, the origins of attitudes that permeated the church uh, when I joined the LDS faith that uh, led to an acceptance of uh, the concept that blacks were cursed um, through Ham, through uh, Ham's wife, uh, Egyptus, uh, that... uh, the three sons of Ham and their offspring throughout all eternity would be cursed, that blacks would not be given the priesthood in this lifetime, not an individual's lifetime, but the lifetime until the Savior returned, and that uh, many writers said it would occur in some other world, in some other sphere. Uh, What was the basis for that? And uh, many didn't have answers. Mm. 
What was your experience then? Uh, you know, I could imagine uh, one reaction, missionaries show up in your door and you learn that uh, you can't hold the priesthood, um, you, you know, go away, I'm not going to join the church, right? Um, but you did. You decided to do that, accepting that very significant restriction, right? Um, which, which also closes off temple blessings, which are important to members of the LDS Church. What was that experience like for you, and did you... The I guess more you, I learned, the more challenging, I started to say difficult, but challenging it was, when you begin to understand that it's not just being ordained and being, quote, a minister, close quote, uh, of sorts, uh, but all that it entailed, yes, uh, temple ordinances, um, temple visits, um, being able to participate at different levels than you can if you don't have access to that priesthood. I, I came to value it, I think, maybe more than someone who didn't have to be without it. Mm. Um, one of the points that I remember so very well, um, sitting in a sacrament meeting with my wife and a university ward sacrament meeting, and um, I was on the aisle, and I partook of the sacrament and reached for the tray to be able to pass it to my right to my wife. And uh, the brother who had passed the sacrament to me quickly withdrew the tray and reached around me to uh, uh, let my wife have the tray, and then it could go further down the uh, seat aisle to be denied in his eyes even the right to touch the tray mm. that held the sacrament. Mm. Um, those, those were uh, bitter pills. Yeah. But again, I come back, I, I, I'm not a masochist. Uh, I, I was not unaware of the issues that were surrounding me, but I have to go back to the night of December 25th when I heard this is the restored gospel, and you are to join. Um, I couldn't deny that. I had a choice. I had agency. I could continue to be a member or not, but I couldn't deny what I had heard. What um, What was your mom's attitude, your family's <laughs> attitude, <laughs> as this went along? Uh, mom was not necessarily lacking in her support, but... She wasn't wholeheartedly behind it either, obviously. And uh, I remember it was some time after, I'd say probably a couple of years, I, I sat down with her one day, and uh, uh, just the two of us, and I went over some of the doctrinal similarities between the Church of God and Christ and Latter-day Saints. And I said, Mom, why don't you join me? Why don't you come on in? The, the water's fine. And she said, son, I'm too old. I'm an old dog. I can't learn new tricks. And she said, besides that, I'd feel like a fly in buttermilk, mm. one dark speck in a sea of cream. Mm -hmm. And I laughed, and I left it alone. Mm. Years later, my mother uh, said, you know, seeing how my membership had affected my life, she said, anything that keeps you out of trouble can't be all bad. Hmm, interesting. I want to, uh, so, uh, um, 
dark fly in, a, in the buttermilk, that, that, that image. Um, maybe have you tell, uh, I was reading it, another interview, you arrive on BYU campus. <laughs> yeah, maybe tell that, tell that well, story. It was even before arriving on the campus, I arrived in Provo um, by way of uh, Continental Bus, and I had a suitcase, and I left that in a locker and walked out on the street on um, University Boulevard that we now know uh, is University Boulevard. And uh, I had met two gentlemen from the um, administration at the Y. In fact, I don't know how it came about, and I I need to contact this one brother uh, or ask both of them, I think, and hope they're both alive. But um, um, after I had made application, um, we received notice that uh, these two men would be in Colorado and wanted to come and speak to me and my mother at mom's home. And um, those were the only two names I had when I arrived in Provo. And so here I was, a new city, no contacts, and I just start, started walking. And I, I noticed that something must be going on behind me uh, because everyone was looking in that direction. And so I kept turning around and trying to see what was going on until I finally realized they weren't looking behind me, but at me. And uh, I was the darkest thing moving down the street. Mm -hmm. Um, Provo at that time, I believe, was the largest American city without a resident black family. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in my life, I started consciously looking for someone who looked like me. And uh, by that point, I had walked down to, uh, I think it's Pioneer Park, uh, maybe wrong on the name, but it's at 5th West and Center Street. And uh, as I looked out on um, Center Street, there was a car with two black people in it. And uh, they were heading uh, west, or east, excuse me, we east. And the light had just changed there at 5th West, (laughs) and I rushed out to the uh, car. Uh, The windows were up. It was uh, summer or June, and the heat was being felt. And I tapped on the window, and a woman was on the passenger side. And uh, I startled her, and I motioned for her, please roll down the window. And she did only partially. And I said, uh, excuse me, but you're the first black people I've seen. And I'd been in town, and I looked at my watch, and I said, I've been in town however long it was, and my, it's good to see you. And uh, she smiled and looked over at her husband, and then she said, we're just passing through. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and the light changed, and they were gone. And you were, you were remained the only person you could tell who was, was of color. Um before we go to break, I wonder if you could uh, tell another story that you've told in other interviews. Uh, you got a job, right? Uh, uh, tearing down houses. Uh, tell me about that. In a college town, any college town, jobs are going to be scarce. And I understand that. And uh, yet, uh, I would see a job listed. Uh, and call on it, and is it available? Yes, and what do I do? What have I done? Blah, blah, blah. I'll be right over. And in all of those situations, once I arrived, those jobs were magically filled. And um, then luckily, one job wasn't filled, and it was doing demolition work, uh, tearing down old houses for new construction. 
And uh, I won't mention the gentleman's name, but I remember it extremely well. And uh, he was a contractor, and that was his business. And uh, there was a crew, and I'm going to guess there were, oh, maybe eight or so of us. Um, could have been more on that crew. And uh, it was hard work, but I was happy to have the work. And I remember being up on a roof back in the days when there were no OSHA standards, no safety harness or anything, and you're um, peeling shingles off of a roof and uh, trying to stay afloat at the same time and not slide down yourself, taking sledgehammer inside without dust mask or breathing protection, but uh, sledgehammers to old plaster and lath. And... uh, while all of this was going on, um, the guys would be getting paid on a weekly basis, and um, they had a paycheck, and the owner would give me cash money. It might be a $20 bill or something, and um, I kept asking, well, when am I going to get a paycheck like the rest of the guys? And uh, he always said that the paperwork was being done. And uh, whatever amount he gave me, it was a fraction of what the other men were receiving, and we were doing the same hours, doing the same jobs. Finally, there was a day when uh, the foreman, uh, a good white brother, I believe a return missionary from Texas, um, approached me, and he said, uh, has Khan paid you yet? And uh, I said, no. He said, well, come on, we're going to go talk to him. And uh, I said, no, leave it alone. I realized how isolated I was there in Provo. I said, just leave it alone. And he insisted. So he walked over, and a few of the other guys came and followed uh, other guys from the crew. And I remember, remember what the foreman said. When are you going to pay this man? And uh, he looked at the questioner, the foreman, And he looked at me, and then almost with a sneer, he said, I'm not going to pay him. He's lucky I gave him a job in the first place. I've been taking flack, was his term, from my friends for hiring a night fighter, his phrase, and I'm not going to pay him. And I, I was stunned at that revelation. That was the negative side. The positive side was that the foreman said, you're going to go up to Salt Lake right now and file a labor claim. And every other person on that job crew walked off the job. And I think we had two car loads that journeyed to Salt Lake. It was not optional from their standpoint. I was going to file a claim. And uh, we went into the state capitol building and found the office, and I told my story, and those men my uh, fellow workers were there as my witnesses. Mm. So while that was a bitter pill, there was also the salve of others who cared. Yeah. Others who were willing to jeopardize their own jobs in support of me. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk about um, 
1978, you know, big, big year for the LDS Church, big year for, for you, Doris Gray, um, and uh, the Genesis Group, and uh, get into a little bit more of the themes of your, of your talk, which, uh, by the way, is redeeming a people, the critical role of historical examination in moving cultural and moral trajectories. It's the, this year's Leonard J. Mormon, Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. It'll be presented by Doris Gray. It's 7 o'clock tonight, Logan Tabernacle, downtown Logan, and also include performances by the Deborah Bonner Unity Gospel Choir. And if I may add, if you want to hear superior, not just good, but superior gospel music, don't come for the lecture. (laughs) Come for the music. (laughs) You are in for a treat. All right. And the lecture doesn't usually include music, so this is a special treat. Uh, Also, there's a panel discussion uh, today, 1 p.m., entitled Mormonism, Race, Priesthood, and the Temple, The Road to 1978 and Beyond. That'll feature uh, Max Mueller, uh, Paul Reeve, LaShawn Williams, and Ron Coleman. That's 1 o'clock today, room 101 of the Merrill Kazir Library, uh, followed by a reception and open house. And tomorrow, presentation of the uh, Evans Biography and Handcard Awards to Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and uh, Ronald Fry. That's 10 a.m. in Merrill Kazir 101. All of that happening today and uh, tomorrow. We'll have uh, much more with Darius Gray, or Darius Gray, sorry, following this break. We have a lot to be thankful for in Utah. Beautiful mountains, amazing waterways, and some of the most beautiful national parks in the world. On many of these wonderful public lands, we can be thankful for infrastructure like roads and trails that were originally constructed over 75 years ago by the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. Created in 1933 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the CCC had 116 camps that existed at one time or another in 27 of Utah's 29 counties. In all, there were 22,074 Utah men who were provided employment by the CCC during the nine-year period. Big thanks to Utah historian Ken Baldridge for his work documenting the CCC's service in Utah. This conservation conversation was brought to you by the Utah Conservation Corps, an AmeriCorps program based at Utah State University with a mission to develop the conservation leaders of tomorrow through service and education. Find out more at usu.edu backslash UCC. Thanks for uh, joining us for Access Utah. We'll get uh, back into our discussion with Doris Gray uh, following uh, this these few words, a couple of minutes here, uh, to remind you that we're in the last day of the Pledge Drive. I'm joined by uh, Danny Hayes, and we've got some exciting news about the Pledge Drive today. We do. I just uh, got word from our uh, the uh, Katie Swain, who manages the Pledge Drive, and we are at 85% of our total goal. Oh, excellent. So that means we are only, we've been counting down from 10,000 today. Um, and we only have 5,000 more to go. Oh, that's good progress. That is great progress. That's excellent progress. So, yeah, and you've been taking advantage of this challenge from Sonia and Ryan DuPont. They have generously offered to match your pledge dollar for dollar up to $3,000, and we only have $800 left of that. So let's take advantage of that right now during Access Utah. Your money doubled, so uh, uh, for another $800 is what you're saying, right? Yeah, so we have um, $800 more, uh, dollars more left of that goal, so to, let's, to let's make it happen. So we've made excellent progress, but we can't rest on our laurels, uh, collectively speaking. Uh, Darius, let's see, let me pledge. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I'm going to take advantage of that double your money and encourage others who are listening who would um, like to do so. Uh, I'll pledge $150. That'll take care of $300. Oh, that's wonderful. uh, Towards our goal. 
and uh, I have my checkbook with me, and we'll write it out before I leave. Okay, well, so thank I you. So I encourage others to join in. It's a worthwhile endeavor. Do you want to give the number? It's right up there. No, I'll let you do it. Oh, it, it's kinda, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. not working. 800-826-1495 or go to upr.org. Well, that's uh, that's so generous of you. Thank you. Thank You're you so welcome. much. Darius Gray Thank is you for the work you do. Uh, Darius Gray has kicked in $150. That'll be doubled to $300 thanks to Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. And so that helps. Darius Gray has done his part. <laughs> uh, you maybe have done your part, in, in which case, thank you. If you haven't, uh, last day of the drive, we want to end on a high note. Uh, and the goal is to reach that overall um, week-long goal. Uh, we counted. We're counting down from ten thousand uh, from uh, the start of today, and we're just five thousand away now. Five thousand away, thanks to you, the listener, members of Utah Public Radio. Um, let's do this. We have five thousand more to go. Eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, and then that will be the end of our pledge drive. And don't forget, we have some uh, great incentives from Ken Sanders from Ken Sanders Rare Books and Back of Beyond Books. Uh, Ken just issued uh, these at the end of Access Utah yesterday, uh, so we have at the one hundred level an autographed first edition of Amy Irvine's new book Desert Cabal a new season in the wilderness this is her response to Edward Abbey uh, and his book Desert Solitaire uh, Amy Irvine a wonderful author and that's for $100 $250 level you can get uh, all four signed broadsides from authors Wendell Berry Terry Tempest Williams Doug Peacock and Amy Irvine uh, so those are options for you. Whatever the option you'd like to pick up for thank you gift, uh, now is the time. All hands on deck, right, to, to count on, down. Yeah, indeed. So for any book lovers, any fans of the envir- uh, environmental liter- literature or really public radio, give us a call, 800-826-1495. Let's take advantage of this um, challenge pledge from Sonia DuPont and Ryan DuPont. 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Darius Gray. Uh, he'll be giving the Leonard G. Arrington Mormon History Lecture this evening, 7 o'clock, Logan Tabernacle, titled Redeeming a People, the Critical Role of Historical Examination in Moving Cultural and Moral Trajectories. There's also a panel discussion, 1 o'clock today, Room 101 of the Merrill Kazir Library, entitled Mormonism, Race, Priesthood, and the Temple, the Road to 1978 and Beyond. And tomorrow, 10 a.m., in that same room, Room 101 of the Merrill Kazir Library, the Evans Biography and Handcard Award presentations to Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and uh, Rodney Fry. Um, so, uh, Darius Gray, I want to, uh, your response, you uh, learned, okay, that uh, if I join the LDS Church, uh, I'll, in essence, be a second-class citizen. Is uh, You know, I guess maybe that's how you could phrase it. Won't be able to have the priesthood, won't be able to, to receive temple uh, blessings. You joined anyway. You uh, you then had questions, Right. The, this is, is this is this doctrine or policy? Is this you know where did this come from? Can I cite any of this? And so bulging files that we've uh, that we've talked about, and we've talked about your personal experiences. But there are many. There's a range of I guess reactions that you could have had, and I guess many people had these reactions. You you could have at a certain point just said I've had enough, leave the church. Right. That's one reaction you could have had. Um, another one could have been, I guess, push hard, you know, really, really put pressure, public pressure on the leaders of the church. It seems like you took not one of those, but a, a middle response. What was your response? What was your, what, what became your goal? 
as you went along prior prior to 1978. My my first response to that, Tom, is to say, God is good. Um, there were times when I was just tired of it all. Uh, there were times when um, I didn't want to be the cursed black member, nor did I want to be Brother Gray on some pedestal, uh, the faithful black member. Uh, I just wanted to be Darius. And um, there were times when it got very old and difficult, and uh, I went on what I would call walkabout. Um, my testimony didn't waver, but um, you know, I, I just needed time out, mm. time away. And uh, God was um, kind enough to allow that, as he always does for any of us. And yet, um, there was a time uh, one day um, working uh, in my office, um, I, I heard in my head, uh, okay, basically, playtime's over. You need to get active again. And uh, I thought, who had the nerve to step into my office and say that? Mm. And, and I looked up, and no one was there. And I thought, okay, that's in my head. That must be running on the back channel somewhere. And um, head down, you know, dealing with paperwork, and there it was a second time. And um, so there were those periods where I, I just felt spiritually led, okay, it's now that I need to become active, involved again. And um, it wasn't necessarily pleasant. Um, I'll... I'll share a very special experience. Um, I was intentionally going to sacrament meeting late. I didn't want to interact with people. Uh, and I would leave early. Uh, as soon as you know we were doing the closing song and you knew the closing prayer was coming, I was finding my car keys in my pocket and by the time someone was ushering uh, the whole thing to a close by saying amen, I was in the parking lot on my way gone. And then there was the Sunday evening or the Saturday evening that said, in my head again, God is generous. And, 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 I, and I'm sorry, I just have to acknowledge that. Um, tomorrow is sacrament meeting. And you will bear your testimony. Sometimes you can get real sick of the things that are in your head. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. And uh, yet, uh, as I continued to just watch television, thought came a second time. I'm a slow learner, if you haven't noticed. It takes two at least. And then there was an addition the second time. It said, not only will you bear your testimony, but you will be first. And I thought, well, there's no way. But then in the way of the world, I started to think, well, if I were to bear my testimony, it's been so long, what would I say? And, you know, where am I? Where are my thoughts? Uh, where am I spiritually? And uh, so I started thinking about what I might say. And I just thought, to heck with that. So I went to bed, woke up next morning, uh, found myself uh, getting up earlier than usual, showering faster than usual, and all of a sudden sitting there in my chapel and not on a back row, but on the second row back from the front. And um, 
there was the typical opening sacrament was passed, and now whomever was conducting had opened uh, opened the meeting up for uh, testimonies, and um, he had sat down, and I kept waiting for someone to go up, and there was that very pregnant pause, and then the words came, and you will be first. I uh, went up to the stand, and I bore my testimony. And uh, I had a very lovely experience that I won't go into here uh, while so doing. Um, and um, I'm very grateful for that experience. Mm. But it, it was and is a journey for any of us, for all of us, um, whatever our faith, um, our denomination, our ethnicity, our age, um, we are on journeys f- with an individual and their God. Mm. And uh, my journey has been one that I am so appreciative of. Mm. Tell me about uh, June 1978. How did you learn of the, uh, the revelation to uh, Spencer June of Kimball? 1978, I was uh, in my office at Zellerbach Paper Company, and um, a woman by the name of Dixie Baker, she was one of the credit assistants, and her, her desk was just outside my office. Uh, Dixie was a marvelous woman, but uh, she was not shy. And um, Dixie stuck her head in and said, Hey, Darius, I hear they're going to give the Negroes the priesthood. And I thought, well, that's pretty darn rude. And I said, Dixie, that's not funny. Get out of here. And uh, she persisted. And this time I swore, Damn it, Dixie, that's not funny. Um, You know, that's a serious thing for a person who's not had that priesthood and has been considered as we were cursed. And uh, yet she persisted. She said she had been on the phone with our largest customer, the LDS Church. They buy a lot of paper towels and toilet paper, and again, Zellerbeck Paper Company. And uh, she said the rumor was going around the church office building that that was going to occur. And I thought, well, no, okay, she had my attention. If there's anything to this, a story of that magnitude would be on air. And I had a a little television and a radio both in my office, and I turned them on, and there was nothing. And uh, I then did the only thing that was logical to me. I picked up the phone, and I called President Kimball's office. And uh, from my years, uh, past years uh, in broadcasting as a journalist um, working at KSL, um, I knew the brethren and some of them knew me. And uh, so with that phone call, it was confirmed that, Mm -hmm. yes, indeed, revelation had been received uh, by President Kimball. And my boss, a young man by the name of Jim Kirschbaum, um, also LDS, And uh, Jim and I um, got together, and I shared that with him. And um, we had uh, an an associate from the Portland, Oregon office of Zellerbach who was coming into town. And he and I, John Taylor, Jack Taylor, had been office mates when I was in Portland and working in the northwest uh, region of uh, Zellerbach Paper Company. And uh, so uh, Jim and I went out to pick up uh, Jack Taylor. And um, Jack said that while he was en route, that story was of a magnitude that it was announced in the air by the pilot 
that the Mormon church had received revelation and the whole thing was told. That's the second person I know who has had that experience where the magnitude of the story was such that it was being announced even in flight. Hmm. Yeah, very historic. Uh, momentous. Uh, you have said something, as reading this, uh, which was seemed uh, profound to me. You said that revelation changed not only the future, but also the past. What did you mean by that? Heber Woolsey was the, the managing director of um, church public affairs, and Heber and I had um, taken assignments by the brethren from time to time uh, to go and speak to groups that had questions uh, when there were the athletic uh, protests from different teams in the WAC that uh, where the uh, the black players didn't want to engage with the BYU players. Um, um, Heber would go and do that, and he did marvelously. The beautiful thing with Heber, he uh, was a faithful Latter-day Saint, but he was also one not to be shy about our, our foibles. And so he would speak clearly and openly and honestly to these groups. At any rate, there was no person I wanted to share that moment with more than Heber, the the revelatory moment. And uh, on our way back from the airport, uh, Jim and uh, Jack Taylor and myself, uh, we stopped off at Temple Square, which was probably a mistake. Um, seeing a black guy on Temple Square on that day, and all of a sudden, here are the media folks all around you. But uh, Heber was officed in the uh, church office building, and I went up to his office, and uh, he had left for lunch to go home, and uh, his secretary called him, and uh, I think she neglected to say it's only Darius, (laughs) because it was Heber Woolsey, who had been called over to the east doors of the Salt Lake Temple. There he met N. Eldon Tanner, counselor in the First Presidency, who handed Heber the document that was the revelation. And there on the steps at the door of the temple, Heber reported to me that President Tanner said, do you have any questions? And Heber said no. He was then invited to go and release it to the world. Mm. So I can imagine that when Heber got the call that uh, he needed to come back to his office, he probably thought it was one of the brethren. Mm. But uh, he and I stood in his office, which overlooked the um, Salt Lake Temple, and we embraced and we cried. And uh, we realized and talked about it that revelation affected, yes, that moment and everything forward. But there were also those individuals whose names had been found doing extraction for genealogical purposes. And if it was a person of color, Negro, black, those names had been put over in a pile, as it were, and held in abeyance. And now that work could go forward. Ordinances that had previously not been performed were to be performed. So it affected not only the current and the future, but it affected the past. Mm. We just have uh, about three minutes left, and I want to end with this uh, question, a very important question. It gets into your your talk, uh, I'm sure, which is, by the way, redeeming a people, the critical world of historical examination and moving cultural and moral trajectories. Um, so that revelation is very important, of course, changed uh, many lives of, uh, of African-American uh, and, uh, black members of the church. Um, but then going forward, 
the history and the the official interpretation of history is very important, right? I believe you were involved. You were invited to be involved in uh, in writing the official essay, which is now on the on LDS.org. Um, I wonder what you'd have to say about understanding, and especially the institutional understanding of that history, and how important that is. Let me give a correction. I uh, did not author it. I was involved with the review of it, and um, the principal author is a uh, man for whom I have great respect. Uh, and yet, uh, I, I often hesitate to uh, mention his name, but I will. But the reason I hesitate is this involved the senior brethren of the church. Mm. Uh, and this individual, Dr. Paul Reeve, had been engaged by the church to help them review the history and the details and to get into the weeds. And he had done that and was working with those senior brethren. Um, it was not a man, Paul Reeve, who wrote and then who should be credited, but the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I, I had uh, an involvement at the end with it, and uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, I'll leave it at that. Okay. okay. Uh, but but the question, what uh, are are you... Are you satisfied with where the church is right now in terms of their official interpretation of the history? On June 1st of this year, we uh, celebrated the 40th anniversary of that um, seminal moment, that revelatory moment of 40 years ago. And it was uh, a celebration held at the conference center. Uh, the entire First Presidency was there, as were all of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, President Eyring, President Oaks, and President Nelson spoke, and um, Elder uh, Nelson, or excuse me, President Nelson and President Oaks's talks are available on YouTube, and I would invite people to go and see it. The entire celebration is available on YouTube. The comments that were made, and I will have two excerpts in my presentation this evening, one from uh, each of uh, President Oaks and President uh, Nelson, um, and, I, and I may have misspoken a bit ago, but President Oaks and President Nelson um, were the principal speakers on that. But um, I will have excerpts from that. The things that I heard in June 1st of this year in the conference center were things I had not dared hope to ever hear. Mm. Um, there was a denunciation of racism, of prejudice. There was no mincing of words. It was very firm and clear with the direction being given to Latter-day Saints and all else who would hear, that we are all children of God, we are all worthy of respect, and that no, the things that have been said in the past need to be put away. Hmm. And I think uh, something that's been very important to you is, uh, did you hear clearly um, that this in the past was not doctrine but was policy? I think that's something that you have wanted to, to be stated. Right? What I do in part in the lecture this evening is show that in a society, you do have the confluence of secular attitudes 
influence the religious attitudes. You would hope it would be more the other way around, but not necessarily so. But um, I, I look at elements of our secular history and some of the language that you can then find the parallel in our religious history, uh, where people are, were demeaned, uh, blacks were demeaned, and thought by, um, well, the, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in his ruling in the uh, Plessy versus, uh, excuse me, no, that was six, uh, 96. Uh, this was Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857, where the Chief Justice said that whether black as a slave or free, there was no right that any black person had that any white person was required to honor. We were not citizens. We were judged not to be citizens. And by the three-fifth compromise of the Constitution that had taken place more than 60 years prior to that, we were considered three-fifths of a human being. Mm. Those sorts of attitudes influence the attitudes of our religious leaders, and I, I think we can draw some direct parallels. Mm. Uh, by the way, we don't have time to discuss this. Uh, you'll have to come to the talk, but I just wanted to mention, uh, very interesting, you the title, or at least the main sentiment of your talk at that B1 celebration was, uh, it's time to bury our weapons, right? Yeah. And it was, and I know we don't have time, but um, one good brother um, sent me a, a note after that, and um, he he appreciated what I had to say, but he took it as though I was saying to people of color that we need to not be struggling and speaking to these issues any longer. And um, no, I'm saying to all of us, black and white, we need to bury our weapons. We need to start treating each other well. It, if we do that, we don't have to argue the points of. We don't have to debate the history of if we start treating each other honorably and well. We'll leave it there. Out of time, Darius Gray is giving the Leonard J. Mormon History Lecture tonight, 7 o'clock at the Logan Tabernacle. will also feature performances by the Deborah Bonner Unity Gospel Choir. Darius Gray, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Brown Monument, serving Cache Valley since 1928, offering monuments and memorials with designs including hand etching, colored glass inlays, and portraits. Located at 450 South Main in Logan. Information at brownmonument.com. And the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Harvest Festival, Sunday, September 30th from 3 to 6 p.m., featuring the sounds of Hillcat Johnson, grape stomping, pumpkin, and raspberry picking. Ticket information at the Vineyards at mtnaomifarms.com.